within your gates, O Jerusalem. O Jerusalem. Build as a city should be, Jerusalem. What's your favorite place on earth? Contemplate that for a moment. Where would you rather be than anywhere else? One evening this past summer, I got a text from a church member who saw a car that reminded him of me, and he sent me a picture of that car and said, I'm sorry I missed you at such and such a store. And I sent back a picture of my own. And I said, well, actually, I'm at my favorite place on earth right now. And as some of you already know, that means that the picture I sent him was full of green. Green grass and green ivy and a green scoreboard. And uh, I said, I'm at my favorite place in the world right now. So what's your favorite place on earth? Where would you rather be than anywhere else? The author of our psalm for today had his favorite place. And it's a lot better than a baseball field, as wonderful as a place like that is. So we're in Psalm 122 today. This is on page 484, if you're using one of the Bibles provided under the seats. We're studying the Psalms of Ascent. These go from Psalm 120 to 134, so there's 15 of these, taking a couple of months to study these Psalms. These are the songs that it seems God's people sang as they marched from all over Israel to Jerusalem uh, to go three times a year for the various festivals that God commanded them in Deuteronomy 16 to commemorate. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're probably wondering, like, why in the world are we studying songs that a group of people in a very different part of the world, in a very different time in human history, would have been singing? Like, what benefit is there in studying those songs? And I would simply say that, yes, while this book is 2,000 to 3,500 years old, uh, depending on which part you're talking about, We are absolutely convinced that this book is from God, and that as such, it is totally trustworthy. And so if you have any questions about that, we'd love to answer those questions, but that's the basis on which we're spending time studying a song today that people sang, you know, say 2,500 to 3,000 years ago. The first two psalms that we've studied, Psalm 120 and 121, the last two weeks, seem to indicate that the journey to Jerusalem was dangerous and that there were people who opposed God's people on the way to Jerusalem. And so here in Psalm 122, the people have arrived, and it's as if they can finally ah, breathe a sigh of relief. Like We made it. We got to where we needed to be, where we intended to go. The journey is over. We made it safely by the mercy of our never-slumbering God, as we saw in Psalm 121 last week. So let's read Psalm 122. I'll read aloud. I invite you to follow along in the Bible. And as always, I encourage you to keep that Bible open, just so you can be looking at the details as we walk through them over the next several moments together. Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together 
to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. If you're going to try and summarize this psalm that I just read aloud for us, how would you try and put this sentence in, or this psalm into one sentence? How would you try and summarize it that way? I think for the first readers, the message of this psalm was pretty clear. I mean, just, just looking at these nine verses, it's pretty clear. He's saying, it is wonderful to go to Jerusalem. But for those of us living today, on this side of the cross, for, for one thing, but for the 98% of us who have never been to Jerusalem, we need to zoom out a bit and read this as those who are indeed living on this side of the cross. So if this is where this psalm was written, and we're living over here, the cross is right in the middle. Let's just assume that humanly, you know, in terms of a timeline, that's the case. How does the fact that the cross is in the middle affect the way we read this psalm and the way we live today? And so for us today, I think what we could do is take this psalm and say, well, maybe we could summarize it this way. It's wonderful to worship the Lord with his people. So you see why we just kind of transformed that the message, it's wonderful to go to Jerusalem. Now we could say it's wonderful to worship the Lord with his people. And if we're going to put it in the form of a command, which I often do, I take the message of the passage and try and kind of show you the one big idea of this psalm and particularly a way that you can relate it to the life that you're living as a faithful follower of Jesus, I think we could summarize it this way. Find joy in worshiping the Lord with his people. Find joy in worshiping the Lord with his people. But as I look out across your faces, I realize that there are people here today for whom the church has been anything but a joy-giving place or a wonderful place. Or I've been reading a book recently called The Loveliest Place, and you would think, yeah, that has not been my experience with the church, which is what that book is about. And so maybe you've sat under bad teaching, like the like heretical teaching. Maybe you've sat under poor leadership. Maybe you have witnessed, maybe you've even had to help uncover a scandal, a financial scandal, a moral scandal of some other kind. Perhaps your church experience, you've had good leaders, you've heard good teaching, but you have felt like an outsider, even though you are, you know, maybe technically a church member. But you still feel like people don't want to sit with you, be hospitable toward you, serve alongside of you. Maybe you've seen pious-looking Christians, you know, the ones who look super nice every single Sunday. Maybe you've seen them sin in really gross, despicable ways. And if that's the case, if that's been your experience, if the church has been anything but the loveliest place for you, I want to respond to that in two ways. One, with sorrow, that you've had to experience that. I I grieve for you that you have had to walk through some of the trauma that, that some Christians have had to work through in various church circumstances. But I also want to respond with a call, and that would be to not give up. To not give up on the church as a whole, on the fact that God is still using sinners to accomplish his work, both here and all the way around the world. 
So please don't give up on the church. And maybe the fact that you're here today is evidence of the fact that you haven't, and I praise the Lord for that. And ask that you continue to give us another week and another week of not giving up on the church. But as I said, this psalm, I believe, calls us to find joy in worshiping the Lord with his people. And this passage teaches three truths about worshiping God with his people. So the first is simply, perhaps it sounds a little bit repetitive after that big idea statement, worship brings God's people great joy. Maybe we could say worship should bring God's people great joy, but I've worded it this way, worship brings God's people great joy. This guy who wrote this psalm, and it appears it's David, which would mean that later it was probably slotted in with the rest of the Psalms of Ascent when they were put in a particular order later on. Whoever the author is, whether it's David or not, he clearly loved to be in Jerusalem. Like This was his favorite place in the world. He wanted to be there above anywhere else. He was thrilled to go there. He loved that place. Again, some of you, that's not your experience. What are some reasons that come to your mind of why it's hard for people to want to go to church? Well, again, maybe it's because there's conflict in the church. And when you walk in the room, and I've had siblings experience this in recent years, when you walk in the church, you feel like you have daggers being thrown at you. Like you're now the human dartboard and everyone's throwing their darts at you just because you walked in the room. Yeah, I wouldn't want to go to church in that circumstance either. Or maybe you don't want to go to church because there's conflict in your home and going to church makes you realize, man, it looks like that you know, family has it all together. And that's just a reminder that my family doesn't have it all together and I don't want to be a part of that. Or maybe you, you don't like the people who are there or you feel like they don't like you. So there are lots of reasons people might not want to go to church, but clearly the author of this psalm, he says, I was glad when they said to me, let's go worship God, which again meant let's go to Jerusalem. Who's the they here that said to me, let's, let's go worship God? It seems to be like it was just the call. Hey, it's been a year since we've celebrated Passover. Let's go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover again. It's just the people of God calling up other people of God to say, let's go do what God has called us to do, to worship him appropriately in Jerusalem. When he says in verse 2 that our feet have been standing, just, we have arrived. That's what it means. We're now within these gates. We are now in a safe place. We've survived the journey. The Lord told us in Psalm 121, he's not going to let our feet slip along the way. Well, we've made it. That means our feet haven't slipped. That means the Lord has kept his word. He didn't slumber. He did keep us alive and he's preserving our faith. And here we are to worship the Lord together. I was glad that these people called me to go to the house of the Lord with him. Because worship brings God's people great joy. Verses 3 through 5 teaches that worship is about God himself. Again, we're kind of zooming out a little bit, because essentially what we're seeing here is the psalmist is describing what makes Jerusalem so special. What makes Jerusalem so beautiful. And again, most of us have never seen Jerusalem. Even if you have, there's some differences that the cross, the ministry of Jesus makes So what can we say about worship being about God himself here in verses 3 through 5? First is that the Lord is the one who instituted it. You see that the Lord is the one who built Jerusalem. It's a beautiful place. It's laid out in a beautiful way, essentially is what verse 3 seems to be saying. But the tribes go up as was decreed for Israel. Well, who's the one? 
who decreed it. What's a decree? It's kind of a command. Who's the one who decreed for these people to go to Jerusalem? It's clearly the Lord. Clearly the Lord is the one who calls his people to worship him. So he's the one who instituted it. So he is to set what worship looks like and what it includes and doesn't include. He's also the focus of it. You see the end of verse 4. He's the focus of true worship. Why did the tribes of of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord? Last line of verse 4, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. That's what you do when you go celebrate Passover. It's just a reminder, the Lord spared us on that terrible night of darkness back there in our nation's history. That's what Israel was doing every time. Annually, they would come and celebrate again and again and again. And they would do this three times a year at three different kinds of feasts. The Lord is the one who instituted worship. He's the focus of worship. You go to the Lord to give thanks to his name for what he's accomplished, for his great deliverance. And he's the one who chooses where it happens. You see this in verse 5. There are thrones there. Thrones for judgment were set. The thrones of the house of David... And essentially what we're saying is that Israel, for Israel, worship happened in the same place as where their government was set up. But for us, again, we're, we're not, as far as I know, none of us are, are Jewish people, but uh, even if you are, for, for those of us as Christians, the fact that God is the one who told people where and how to worship means that we don't just get to make it up ourselves. So maybe you've met somebody, as I have met multiple people in the past, who have said, well, I can actually worship God anywhere. Like if I invite somebody to to come to church. They'll be like, well, I don't, I don't need to go to church. Like, why in the world would I waste my time there? I can actually worship God better by myself in nature. And to be clear, like Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows forth his handiwork. So yeah, you can see God's glory in the things that he's made. But God didn't tell you to go into the woods and walk around and hear the, the soft gentle breeze and trickling river through the forest and all this. No, God, God calls you to worship him with his people at his time and in his place. And so worship is not something that's individualistic. This is something that, again, the tribes are going up together. You didn't go to Jerusalem by yourself to worship the Lord. You're going with all of your fellow people. Worship is something we do. Not, it's, not, it's, it's we, not me, if you want to put it that way. That, that's how we worship, is with other people. Worship is about God himself. So what does this passage teach us about worship? Worship brings God's people great joy. Worship is about God himself. And then third, verses 6 through 9, worship requires your response and commitment. Worship requires your response and commitment. See, the first command really the only command in this psalm, and that is to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. This psalmist, what we can say about verses 6 through 9, is this psalmist was absolutely committed to the good of Jerusalem. He loved Jerusalem. We already saw that. And he told you why he loved it so much, why it was so special in verses 3 through 5. And here we're seeing he's absolutely committed to Jerusalem. Why should the readers of this psalm pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Why should the people who, again, let's say they read this 2,500 years ago. Let's just round off. Why should they be praying for the peace of Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem was the place where first the tabernacle was. 
which had the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, which represented the presence of God. So if you want to go where God is, you go to where the Ark is. And the Ark is in the tabernacle, and the tabernacle's in Jerusalem. So let's all go to Jerusalem. Well, later on, the temple was built in Jerusalem. And David wanted to build it back in the beginning of 2 Samuel 7. And the Lord was like, you know, I really appreciate that but I'm actually going to build you a house. And by that, he means I'm going to build you a family dynasty. And later on, one of your family members, the Lord tells David, will build a house for me, the temple. But in the meantime, I'm going to build you a dynasty, a house of a different kind. And from that dynasty will come a son who will rescue my people. Which is what we celebrate at Christmas, obviously. And so Jerusalem was... Important because that's where ultimately the temple was. Before that, the tabernacle was. The tabernacle was a temporary structure. The temple was a permanent structure. But both simply represented the presence of God, the presence of the Lord for the people of God. But then again, as you move your way through the Bible storyline, what comes later? What changes? Come to John 1, which we'll read to the service tonight. You can come back for that if you'd like. John 1 says that Jesus came and he dwelt among us. You know what that word dwelt means? It means he tabernacled among us. It means that he brought God's presence into time and into place. And so then, the presence of God wasn't marked by a building, it was marked by a person, Jesus himself. And he says in John 2 that he himself is the true temple. Which his disciples didn't understand then, but they came to understand later. And what did Jesus do in the passage that John Gonzalez read for us earlier, John 4? Jesus having a conversation there. You're probably familiar with that story. Jesus talking to the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, and she realizes through the conversation she has with Jesus that Jesus has some really interesting information about her. You remember what that was? That He says, you know, you have had five husbands and the person you're living with now isn't your husband She's like, wow, you're clearly a prophet. I'm going to take advantage of this moment, thank you very much, and ask you the biggest theological question I have. Where should we worship God? Like, This is my golden opportunity to ask whatever question I want, because he clearly knows the answer. So, Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim. You Jewish people, you worship at Jerusalem. You tell me, which one is it, she says to Jesus. And what was Jesus' answer? It's what John read for us. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here, because Jesus is now here, he was saying, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So in other words, when Jesus came... It changed worship forever. Because by Jesus being born and living a perfect life, he's now brought the presence of God onto the earth. And then when he died in your place, he stood condemned in your place, and then he was resurrected, and then he ascended to heaven. And then what happened? The Holy Spirit came down and filled the hearts of all those who had followed Jesus, and continues to fill the hearts of all those who follow Jesus 
So that now God's presence isn't in a tabernacle or in a temple or in one person in Jesus. He's in all of us. So that when we gather together, this is where God's presence is. So does the fact that Jesus was born 2,000 years ago change the way we read Psalm 122? Absolutely it does. Because now we don't go to Jerusalem, just like Samaritans don't go to Mount Gerizim. You go to church to worship Jesus. So when the church is gathered together, the presence of God is in our midst. So this command, the only command here in Psalm 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for the original readers of this psalm, the reason that was important was because if there's no Jerusalem, there's no place to go worship God. But if we don't need to go to Jerusalem, what's it mean to, you know, to go to Jerusalem to worship God? What's it mean to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? I think it means, this is where we read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, it means we pray for the peace of our churches, where we can go and worship God together. We read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We read Psalm 122 in light of the New Testament. And so the Old Testament means what the New Testament says it means. Okay, so just kind of let that one lock in. Like if you're going to write down one sentence, maybe let that be the one. The Old Testament means what the New Testament says it means. To pray for the peace of Jerusalem meant pray that we have a safe place to go worship God. And that's why he says, I'm so glad we're within your gates in verse 2. Like we've actually made it safely here so we can actually worship. But we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Let me tell you a little bit of uh, experience from the last couple days that I had that helped me remember how important it is, how critically important it is that we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament because of some of the terrible conclusions we can come to if we forget to read even Psalm 122 through the lens of the cross. So uh, recently I watched a uh, documentary about an NFL defensive powerhouse named Reggie White. He was a wonderfully skilled defensive lineman the Eagles in the late 80s, mid-80s, late 80s, early 90s, and then um, for other teams after that. But this documentary was tragic in at least two ways. Reggie White was a very outspoken Christian. I mean, everybody who knew him knew Reggie White was a Christian. If you listened to the news, you knew while he played, you knew Reggie White was a Christian. He was the one who started the, the trend of praying on the field with other Players are from your own team and from the opponent's teams after the games were over. He started that trend. But this documentary was tragic for two reasons. One was he was the first player in NFL history to become a free agent, which means he can choose any team he wants in the league to go play for them, and he chose the Green Bay Packers. I'm like, bro, come on! You have so many other options. So it's tragic on that level. The second, more tragic level was, as he came to the end of his life, so he retired around the age of 40, he died at the age of 43 of a heart attack. But as he came to the end of his life, he started to reevaluate everything he had ever heard. And he started to study Hebrew like six hours a day because he became convinced that if I can read Hebrew, I'll be closer to God. And by learning to read the Old Testament in Hebrew he started to see things that he had never read before. Like, well, maybe you should have just started with an English Bible. That's just a thought. Maybe it's the Packers' influence on your brain there. But nonetheless, if you had just started with an English Bible, maybe you'd realize this stuff was already in the Bible there the whole time. But people started to influence him in particular ways. 
So they would make him realize, like, look, see, the Bible says you shouldn't eat pork. Well, you eat pork, Reggie. So you really shouldn't be judging anybody else or saying what's right or wrong because who are you? You violated this Old Testament command about eating pork. And he's like, oh, man. Maybe what I've always thought was true isn't true at all. And he started shedding beliefs that he had held his entire life, that he had preached. He was a pastor, I believe. At least a regular preacher, if not an actual formal, formal pastor. I believe he was an ordained minister, which is why he, the, the documentary is called The Minister of Defense, if you're interested in this. Is eating pork a sin? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. And many of you are shaking your heads, no, that's correct. So go home and eat bacon after this and have a victory feast and say, thank you, Jesus, for giving us this privilege. Why is it not a sin? Because Jesus was born, okay? And Jesus lived a perfect life. And Jesus died in your place. And so the way we now read those Old Testament laws has been transformed through the cross. We read with cross-shaped lenses. And so, if you leave out the New Testament, the work of Jesus, you could assume that it's still a sin. That's what Reggie White did. It's still a sin for me to do this, so I can't actually really know what's right or wrong. He, he left out the cross. He left out Jesus. And so, essentially, he deconverted. He converted to Judaism. He stopped calling himself a Christian. He would say, well, I'm just a believer. Who knows? what he actually believed on his last day before, before meeting the Lord. But all, I would, all I'm trying to say is, for one, the importance of being grounded in good theology. Like actually being, really knowing what is true and what is false. Um, being able to hold up a dollar bill and say, this is a dollar bill and you can see why. And here's a fraud and you can see why. Well, the way you do that is through knowing good theology, through sound doctrine. We have a book on the table in the back called Sound Doctrine that will help you get a good start on that if you'd like. It also teaches the importance of how uh, being part of a healthy church that teaches you how to read the Bible. It turns out most of the times that Reggie White would go to church, it was so he could preach because he was a celebrity. So now he's basically there to entertain people because, hey, look, an NFL like, rock star is here to preach to us today. Well, instead of having a guy who literally has never really read the Bible, all he's doing is saying the things he's heard his whole life, Maybe you should let him just be a part of a healthy church where he can hear people preach and in doing so, teach him how to read the Bible. And that includes Psalm 122. So you can't read the Old Testament, including Psalm 122, and assume Jesus has nothing to do with it. You have to read the whole Old Testament like you live on this side of the cross. We go to church to worship God because 1 Corinthians 3 says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So all of this is to answer the question, which I know you just had this burning question in your hearts this week. What does it mean to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? I'm being sarcastic. I doubt that question crossed your mind. But if it did, what does it mean to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? You have to read that through the cross. What does it mean for us living 2,000 years or even a year after the cross, day after the cross, What does it mean for us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? And the obvious answer would be, well, duh, you should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Well, that's fine. But again, that's that's what it would have meant to the first readers. And that's, you know, again, we're saying if there was no Jerusalem, there was no place to go worship. 
Is that the case for us, this side of Jesus' ministry? If there's no Jerusalem, there's no place to worship? No, that's not the case. Like, Jerusalem could be, you know, nuked off the face of the earth. And it doesn't affect the way we understand this psalm. It doesn't understand, affect the way that we worship God. So should we still be praying, Lord, bring peace to Jerusalem? Absolutely. While also praying, Lord, bring peace to the people of Nairobi and Cairo, and San Francisco, and Bangkok, and Toronto, and Lima, and Chicago. Bring peace wherever there are your people gathered together. If we were to pray for Jerusalem as if one day we're all going to go there, and that's going to make our worship be extra special, what we've just done is turn God's salvation clock backwards. It's like you've just built a 2,000-piece jigsaw puzzle and you've got one piece left to put in it. And instead of putting that piece in, you tear out like the whole middle section. That's what you've just done if you say, well, in the future, we need to go back to Jerusalem. That's where we can truly worship God. No, you've just gone backwards. Jesus has changed the way we understand this passage because he changes the way we understand the whole Old Testament. So praying for the peace of Jerusalem means we pray that churches will prosper, that God will bring his presence to earth today through healthy churches that preach his word. It means we look forward to the day when there is no more temple, as we saw in Revelation 21 and 22, because God himself is with us, and we are dwelling in the new city, the true heavenly Jerusalem. But right now we pray for peace. One day there's a day when we don't need to pray for peace. This is not that day because we face threats from within and from without. But we pray for the church. I think that's what verse 6 teaches us. Pray for churches to thrive. We enjoy the security God gives you. That's verse 7. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. Particularly, this is spiritual security. We call this eternal security. We invest in fellow believers in in the community of the saints. We could see this in verse 8. For my brothers and companions' sake. This is, again, a reminder that worship isn't about me and God. It's about us gathering together to worship the Lord. For my brothers and companions' sakes, I will say, peace be within you. In other words, I'm committed to the good of other people. It's important for me to know what's going on in your life, and it's important for you to know what's going on in my life. Because we are all vulnerable. And the evil one knows exactly the size of darts that he needs to use to get to your heart. He knows exactly what's going to hit home for you, even if it's not going to hit home for a single other person in this room. So you need the good, for the good of of our church, you need other people to be involved in your life to kind of get up in your grill kind of get up in each other's business. This whole mind-your-own-business thing when it comes to the sins in, our, in our, each other's lives is not good counsel. Am I my brother's keeper? Uh, yeah. That's what Jesus would say. And this is from, for instance, Hebrews 3.13. And when you, as you see the day approaching, as you see the day coming, you're calling each other to repentance continually. Even as Martin Luther said, that the Christian life is one of continual repentance. Verse 9 here, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, the psalmist says, I will seek your good. And just as a Bible reader there, you should ask the question, who is the your there? Whose good am I supposed to be seeking? And I think it's Jerusalem itself. But even in that case, again, it's the place where we worship God. It's the people we worship God with. 
and to seek the good of other people. And again, you might kind of be thinking like, well, I just don't really enjoy being with Christians. Like, they're weird. Absolutely. That's fine. Don't worry about that. I don't think worship is that wonderful. I leave bored. So be it. Though I would say, you can change that in a couple different ways. But one is simply just to kind of realize what's happening every time we gather together as the people of God in a place where the Word of God is being preached and and visualized through the Lord's Supper and baptism and so forth. Corporate worship, in other words, when we gather together on a Sunday like this, is how God changes us. Yes, He does this through our personal reading of the Word of God, our personal singing of hymns while we drive, things like this. But corporate worship is how God changes us. Corporate worship shows the beauty of the truth to the watching world, whether they're here or not. So if there's unbelievers in our midst, maybe there are right now, or whether there are, even if there are not unbelievers in our midst, we're still actually proclaiming the truth. How's that happening? Because everybody who's walking by on that bike path right now, and everybody who's driving down Brainerd Avenue right now is seeing a parking lot full of cars. And we're like, what in the world are they doing? Wasting two hours of their valuable weekend being here. There are so many other things to do. Like, Target's still open. You can still get more stocking stuffers. And you're sitting in a church building in countryside Illinois, and by the fact that you're in this building and your car probably is out in that lot, you're telling the watching world there's something more important because there's someone more important. You're proclaiming the truth even just by being here. Corporate worship is where you hear the good news, which is what we all need to hear. You don't need to hear the gospel one time, respond to it in repentant faith, and then move on. You need to hear the good news over and over again, which is what the book of Romans teaches us. The book of Romans lays out the gospel unlike anything else in the Bible, and it's written to Christians, which tells us we all need the gospel every day. It's also, corporate worship is where believers are equipped to serve other people. And by equipped to serve other people, I mean something like this. If you call yourself a cook, which is a good thing to do, a good thing to be, but you don't have any utensils, or any pots and pans, or any recipes. You can say you're a cook till you're blue in the face. That's fine. But you're actually not able to make meals to feed people, to serve other people. By coming together here at church, you're being equipped with spiritual tools, utensils, so that then you can go and serve other people the truth. You can then invest in one another's lives You can be essentially the hands of the Lord in each other's lives by being equipped while you're here. And so I just want to urge you to prioritize corporate worship, to make this the place you want to be every single Sunday. I really like this Christmas card we got from one of our missionaries at Frontline Missions. This shows a group, I would say, probably of two to three dozen people gathering clearly in a very cold, snowy forest in the middle of persecution in Soviet Russia. Probably pictured here in... You know, say, let's say the early 80s, something like that. They knew they needed to be in the house of the Lord. Where was that house? In the middle of a nondescript forest somewhere in Russia. This is where I need to be so that my heart can be changed by the word of God. And maybe you're aware that everything you do does something to you. That means every time you're at church, it does something to you. It's forming you from the inside out. It also means every time you don't go to church, 
you know, and you, and you have a choice in it, not like you're lying sick in the hospital or something. Every time you don't go to church, that's forming you too. It's creating some kind of a desire or a habit or revealing desires and habits. I want to encourage you, as you consider corporate worship, the beauty of being with the people of God, the beauty and importance of worship, that you sing good songs, that you listen to good songs. Before the service, Eddie was playing an album put out by Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. I personally know of no other church where the congregational singing will make you want to weep at how beautiful it is because you have a thousand people just belting the songs out. And that's what that album is. It's just their church singing to the glory of God. And I would encourage you to listen to their albums that they put on Apple Music or YouTube or wherever else you hear music. That's because everything you do does something to you. So hearing good singing is going to make you want to come here and sing well. And I think that's a good desire. Recently came across a very old Christmas song. It's simply called Old Scottish Carol, but the first line of the song, I don't think that means that Carol herself is Scottish, but I think it just means it's the Christmas Carol that's old and from Scotland. But nonetheless, what strangers are these? That's the first line of the song. And it's about Mary and Joseph. But then the third verse isn't talking about Mary and Joseph anymore. The third verse says, Who are these that march from death unto life? These are they who love Jesus, the Christ child. And how do they triumph or the gates of hell? Through the grace of him, Jesus, the Savior. He is born. Why did Jesus? Why was Jesus born? We're celebrating Jesus' birth this weekend. Why was Jesus born? Here's what the song says, this old Scottish carol says. He is born to redeem mankind from sin and strife. You're kind of like, duh. But he's also born to bring peace, joy, love. And this was the part that when I heard this, I was like, oh, there's a sermon content piece. He came to bring peace, joy, love, and brotherhood. Jesus came not so that you would be able to worship God, but so that we would become the people of God. Kevin DeYoung, one of his first books, he's a pastor in North Carolina now. This was back when he was a pastor in Michigan. He wrote a book called Why We Love the Church in praise of institutions and organized religion because, let's be honest, most people don't like institutions and organized religion, at least people my generation and younger. So Kevin DeYoung writes this part. This is the, the conclusion of the book, the last paragraph of the book. He says, so I guess this is my final advice. And this is my final advice to you today. Find a good local church. I have a suggestion if you're looking. Get involved. Become a member. Stay there for the long haul. Put away thoughts of revolution for a while. Go to church this Sunday and worship there in spirit and truth. Be patient with your leaders. Rejoice when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. Bear with those who hurt you. And give people the benefit of the doubt. While you're there, sing like you mean it. Say hi to the teenager no one notices. Welcome the blue hairs and the nose ringed. Volunteer for the nursery once in a while. And yes, bring your fried chicken to the potluck like everyone else. Invite a friend to church. Take the new couple out for coffee. Give to the Christmas offering. Be thankful someone vacuumed the carpet. Enjoy the Sundays that click for you. Pray extra hard on the Sundays that don't. And do not despise the day of small things. So I'll just ask you again. What's your favorite place? in the world? What's your favorite place on earth? Could the Lord, by his grace, change my heart 
and yours so that when you think, my favorite place on earth is when I am with God's people worshiping the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, indeed, we march from death unto life. We triumph over the gates of hell because Jesus himself has crushed and will on the last day perfectly, finally, completely crush the head of the serpent, that ancient serpent, the dragon who hates our souls. But we love you because you first loved us and you have revealed this truth to us that it is glorious to worship you with your people. We are thankful that we are citizens of your city, of the city of God. Not because of our own efforts or achievements or intuition, our own inclinations and leanings. We are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem because of the work you have done in our hearts through Jesus and his perfect life and death and resurrection. And we long for his coming and pray that you would give us grace to be faithful until he comes. And one of the ways we pray that you would do that is that we would be faithful to your people, to gather together, to hear your word, to sing it together, and to respond to it. In Christ's name, amen. We stand with me.